if you only ever talk to venture capitalists that invest in the space, that's what everyone will tell you. Or, you know, startups doing analytics on satellite imagery. Oh, it's a really common thing you'll hear. Satellite imagery is being commoditized. It's getting super cheap, super plentiful, super accessible. And none of that is true. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Joe Morrison. He is the VP of Commercial Product at a satellite startup called Umbra. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about why satellite data is not a commodity and what that means for the industry. This podcast episode is sponsored by Regrid. So Regrid have recently been through a rebrand. They were formerly known as Landgrid, but now it is regrid.com. There'll be a link to this in the show notes. And if you haven't heard of them before, they are one of the leading providers of land parcel and location context data for the entire US. So Regrid does a lot of the heavy lifting. They collect, clean, and stitch together property boundaries into this sort of seamless data fabric for you. So if you are interested in understanding how US land is subdivided, owned, used, inhabited, and networked into economies and ecologies, this would be a really, really great place to start. So that's regrid.com. Jerry, the CEO and co-founder of Regrid, has actually been on the podcast before. If you want to check out that episode, it's called Polygons of Ownership. And he goes into a lot more detail about the history of subdividing land and, and what this has meant for, for land use and, and land ownership and some of the consequences of this. So that, that's worth checking out. Regrid, formerly known as Landgrid. If you're looking for parcel data for the US, this is the place to go. Hi, Joe. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. You are someone that I've, I've wanted to talk to for, for some time now. So I'm you know, a little bit excited, a little bit nervous about this conversation. Today, we're going to be talking about satellite data, why it's not a commodity. And I think before we jump into that massive topic, perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? How did you get involved in, in geospatial? Awesome. Well, I'm stoked to be on the podcast. I think this is one of the best podcasts in this industry. I'm grateful that you put it on. The guests that you have on are always fascinating. So <laughs> hopefully I can live up to the standard that you've set because it's a super high one. But thank you for having me on. And uh, it's an honor to get to chat with you. So yeah, who am I? My current role is VP of commercial product at Umbra, which is a satellite startup. We do synthetic aperture radar. And my path to getting here was pretty unintentional, as I, I think a lot of people who get into this space find. So I, I'm not a map guy. I didn't study geography or GIS or anything like that in college. I was a religion major, actually, in college. And so it was me. I, wouldn't, I, I would say I'm agnostic, maybe. I wasn't like trying to go into the priesthood or anything like that. I just thought the topic was kind of interesting. Couldn't really pick a, a major that I cared about. So I just picked a topic that allowed me to do a bunch of different stuff. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. So what wound up happening was in college, I started a, a small company. I was actually making manufacturing backpacks and I got really hooked on this idea of entrepreneurship. Like it was so much fun to build something from scratch, like a, a brand, a product that didn't exist that you could bring into the world. I just thought it was like the most creative and challenging thing I could do. And so got super excited about entrepreneurship found that backpacks were not the most fulfilling mission in life. <laughs> Couldn't really keep it up and started looking at industries that had a little bit more tangible impact for bettering the world, as cheesy as that sounds. And without going into a ton of detail, I landed at a company in Philadelphia called Azavia that was a B corporation, which means that they're independently audited for you know, how well they compensate employees, what their carbon footprint is, all, all sorts of factors about basically how ethically and, and how well run the company is with this real social mission at the core of the company and an entrepreneur, Robert Cheatham, who I really admired. And I was really just trying to learn from him, essentially, kind of apprentice under an entrepreneur that I really respected. And it just happened that they were doing geospatial software. So it was much less about picking like a career in mapping and much more about finding a team that I really admired. And I was there for five and a half years. And yeah, learned about satellites there, started working on machine learning projects there, and eventually found my way to, to this job where I get to have a, a more direct impact on 
you know, satellites that are getting launched, uh, new types of data that are streaming down from space, making that accessible. But I, I am not, I'm not a map guy, I would say. I'm just a guy that works in the mapping industry. <laughs> so uh, that's the honest truth about how I landed here. I really appreciate your openness and your honesty there. I think it's really interesting to hear how different people ended up where they are today. So I promised during the introduction there that we're going to be talking about satellite data. That this is something you have a reasonable amount of experience with. And you have this really strong opinion that it's not a commodity. Would you mind talking, could we use that as a starting point? Why is satellite data not a commodity? It feels like it should be, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd think it was. If you, if you only ever talk to venture capitalists that invest in the space, that's what everyone will tell you. Or, you know, startups doing analytics on satellite imagery. Oh, it's a really common thing you'll hear. Satellite imagery is being commoditized. It's getting super cheap, super plentiful, super accessible. And none of that is true. So if, if that were true, like the, the joke I always say is commodities are commodities because you can buy them. And good luck buying some high-resolution satellite imagery. Like, I don't know. Have you ever tried to purchase satellite imagery personally? Never, never. I'd really appreciate it if you would sort of walk us through the process. Yeah, well, I'm talking mainly about optical imagery, and there's other types of satellite imagery that, that we can go into. But most people, when they think of satellite imagery, what they're imagining is aerial imagery because they've gone on Google Maps and they've flipped on the satellite imagery layer, which, you know, God bless the product manager that chose to call it satellite imagery when the majority of what people look at is actually aerial imagery, but that's a different topic for a different day. You zoom to your city and it's super high resolution. It's probably like six centimeter pixels. And you think that's what satellite imagery is. When in fact, the highest resolution commercial satellite imagery is somewhere around 30 centimeters. So that's like if you opened up Google Earth and you zoomed to a rural part, but probably where you live. Honestly, if, if you zoom to that section of the world and you look at the satellite imagery base layer, that's probably 30 or 50 centimeter data. And that's a lot lower resolution. There's a lot less that you can see in that data. And for the most part, it's a lot more expensive, actually, than the aerial imagery in urban areas. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, but it's not easy to get a hold of. So like today, if you want to buy 50 centimeter or below satellite imagery, you kind of have to know somebody like you got to call in a favor at Maxar or Airbus because those are pretty much the only two companies that sell this data. Their main customers are paying them hundreds of millions of dollars a year for access to their data. So your you know, email to them is not going to be a super high priority and probably shouldn't be. But then you'll go through the sales process. You'll get picked apart. You'll look at contracts, lawyers will be involved. It'll probably take you a few months to actually be able to task a satellite to go collect over the area that you care about. It's this super long and difficult process. And the reason it's like that is that there's not a ton of competition at the highest levels. And, and that's what really people want because they're looking at aerial imagery thinking that's what's possible from space when it's not. Well, it's possible, but it's not legal to do commercially currently, at least in the United States. They think I want the highest resolution stuff because that's where I can count cars and I can you know, look at the angle, the slopes on roofs, and I can you know, do all sorts of intricate feature extraction and mapping work. And so that's what people really want, but it's not easily accessible. That, that, that's a big piece of what I mean when I say it's not a commodity. There's just not many people that can produce it. And the ones that do charge a premium for it, and that's just not how commodities work in my understanding of them. There should be downward pricing pressure. There should be efficient, large markets for commodities, and there just aren't for high-resolution satellite imagery. But the fact is that there are a few actors in this space, right? There are a few companies that, that can do this, that can provide this product. And so I guess people could maybe fall back on the argument that isn't a pixel a, a pixel? Aren't all pixels equal? And if there's two or more actors, don't we have competition? And shouldn't that drive the price down? I think in optical, there will be competition somewhere around a sweet spot of about 70 centimeters. And I don't know why that is. I'm sure if I were more in the weeds or smarter, I could tell you like the, the laws of physics that govern how satellites actually capture imagery, that, that why 70 centimeters or one meter imagery is so much easier to collect than 50 centimeter or 30 centimeter imagery. But in the news recently, I mean, Satellogic is a company out of Argentina that just announced it's going public yesterday. 
this morning at 5 a.m. my time, Planet Labs, which is a company that collects 70 centimeter satellite imagery, announced it's going public. Black Sky earlier this year collects one meter data. They uh, announced they were going public via SPAC earlier this year. So there's a bunch of people in that realm. But one meter and above data, it's not really what you think of when you think of high resolution imagery. And it is useful for analytics and, and land use mapping and other uses. But it's not where like the, the peak of demand is for satellite imagery. So I think that space is going to get cheaper. But even if it does, even in areas where there's a ton of competition, yeah, I, you're, you're kind of teeing me up for something here, which is that not all imagery is created equal. And there are so many variables that govern the quality of a satellite image, especially just an optical image. Like how many bands does it have? What are the spectral channels it's capturing, essentially? Some instruments have, you know, eight channels and they're really highly calibrated and really refined. Some have just three RGB. Some have, you know, 15 that have all these, you know, interesting non-visible light spectra. So that's one element. One element is just how geospatially accurate it is, absolute accuracy. So if you see a house on the satellite image, how close is that house to its actual location in physical space, the way they've projected it and corrected it for terrain and orthorectified it and all this processing that goes into it. Some companies have been doing that for 30 or 40 years. Some companies are in their third or fourth year of trying to figure that out. And it's a super hard problem. So depending on the application, you can see wildly varying quality in the data. And the example I always give is like, if you look at a lot of satellite imagery, you start to realize that spatial resolution doesn't necessarily correlate one-to-one -one with optically, like how it looks to your eye qualitatively, how, how good it looks. And like, for example, a 50 centimeter GOI image, GOI is a constellation that's operated by Maxar, has a long history, was actually you know, created by a separate company that, was, that merged with Maxar back in the day, back in 2012. So they've been operating that satellite for a really long time, getting really, really good at processing the data. And a 50 centimeter image from GOI can sometimes look higher resolution to me than a 30 centimeter image, depending on like the look angle and, and how it's been processed. It's not super intuitive. So I say all that because, yeah, the, the, this idea that satellite imagery is just like snap your fingers and you'll get this standard product that's in a standard file format with standard metadata processed to a standard level, like that may never happen in my lifetime. It's all bespoke, idiosyncratic, complicated stuff. And when you train models to interpret that data, they wind up being really fragile. So a model trained on SkySat data from Planet probably won't work very well on Black Sky data, probably won't work very well on Satellogic data, and so you've got to retrain these models uh, over and over and over again or, or make custom models per vendor. So not, again, none of that sounds like commoditization to me. And, and plus, just, just to throw this in too, you know, commodity markets, they, they tend to find an equilibrium and you know, a, a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil and it trades at a certain price that goes up and down. They're not inventing newer and better forms of oil, you know? And so in, in satellite imagery, people are constantly finding new and better ways to capture that imagery and process it. So it's fundamentally like the product is changing all the time. Every year, it's getting better and better. And so, yeah, that's, that's another element that I think people discount where there's, we're not at some like stable equilibrium in the industry right now. We're going through a major period of disruption. So yeah, it's not super straightforward how that's going to evolve into the future, but I do not think it looks like a commodity market at all. Thank you very much for walking us through that. So I'm, I'm clearly not in the weeds as, as much as you are when it comes to, to satellite data or the satellite industry, but I have heard this term a lot, and this is the, the term analysis-ready data. And for me, when I hear it anyway, I think, oh, great, it's analysis-ready. I can just put this into my machine learning algorithm and I can you know, do machine learning. I can, I can do my analytics. And for me too, I have this idea that if you come with 50 centimeter resolution data and I have my machine learning model working with that, I can just change that out if I get access to other 50 centimeter resolution data. But perhaps the, the price is cheaper with some other vendor. I can just switch those two out because it's analysis ready. I, I can continue doing what I'm doing. 
I know you're going to rip me to bits here. Please be gentle. Why, why am I wrong? Well, you're, you're wrong because, so analysis ready data, ARD is kind of a catchphrase in the remote sensing world at the moment. And there's some really great work, at least in the United States. I'm, I'm, I'll admit that I have a US-centric view of a lot of these things, which is limited and biased. So take it with a grain of salt. But at least in the United States, there's been great sort of annual conferences for the past few years organized out in California to bring a bunch of people together and present on analysis-ready data. A lot of it focuses on taking open data sets like Landsat, which is operated by NASA and the USGS in the United States, this free, open, 30-meter data set, multispectral data set. And then Sentinel-2, which is operated by the European Space Agency, which is a phenomenal data set, 10-meter multispectral data. So they're different resolutions, but they cover the whole world on a regular cadence. So I think with Sentinel-2, it's something like once every 5 to 12 days, you get coverage of the whole world. And with Landsat, it's something like once every 16 days. I might have those numbers wrong, but it's something like a weekly or biweekly cadence for both. And what they talk about when they say analysis-ready data is processing those data sets so that they're orthorectified and put on top of each other so that a pixel in Landsat lines up exactly with a pixel in Sentinel. And that is, to a degree, like a, a huge innovation in the space because you can fill, you can sort of backfill gaps in your data with that analysis-ready data set. But analysis-ready doesn't mean universally it doesn't mean universally the same thing. So it's like internal to that particular process data set, there's a bunch of editorial decisions you have to make about how you transform that data to meet somewhere in the middle. And mostly it's about combining data sets with each other to make them interoperable, but it's not going to translate to the next data set, the third data source or fourth data source. And two people can make analysis-ready data sets of Sentinel and Landsat and generate them in completely different ways. And they wind up with this like equally coherent products at the end of the day that don't look anything like each other. So again, it's, it's all kind of custom idiosyncratic work that's happening. It's not really like standardized in the way you might expect. But I think, you know, generally analysis ready data, the, the catchphrase in the intelligence community for the same concept is sensor fusion, where you're taking multiple data sets and you're combining them together in some way that's additive and processed to be interpretable and trustable. So yeah, that's a really cool field. But again, it's not like something where you found some magic bullet, oh, there's one standard you can process every data set to, and then you can just swap out your algorithms and it's super straightforward and super easy. Even there, it's like the way you simplify it is by making a bunch of executive decisions about how it should be simplified and then processing it to that simplified form, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I guess as an outsider, I'm kind of amazed at the the lack of structure. Like I understand that the industry is moving really, really fast, but I, I guess I had just assumed that there would be more interoperability between these different data sets and perhaps more standardization in terms of how they were being processed. Yeah, I, I, I want to give a shout out. You say that I, there's a, a group of people working on a standard called the Spatiotemporal Asset Catalog. I don't want to bore your <laughs> listeners to death about what stack STAC is how it works, but you can think of it like a standard directory structure for how you store the data. So we've been talking about how you process the data, but once you've got it processed, how do you make it easily accessible to other people online? That's the problem that Stack is solving. And that was like a grassroots effort. Really, there's a guy at Planet Labs, Chris Holmes, with Open Chomes on, on Twitter. He's the man. And he sort of started this grassroots movement around spatiotemporal asset catalog, got a bunch of his friends, basically, to start playing with the standard and contributing to it. Then a nonprofit called Radiant Earth Foundation actually adopted leadership for where it would be hosted and organizing events around it. So totally organic kind of effort to standardize at least the way that we represent data to each other, even if it's processed with all this custom stuff at least the way that it shows up online and is accessible can be standardized. And the Open Geospatial Consortium, OGC, started adopting the stack standard, I believe, which I think, I think is super impressive. Because if you look at the history of that organization, it's kind of top down. They set objectives, they, they form working groups, they make these really complicated, very well documented, but very complicated standards like WMS and WCS and these other 
sort of web standards for representing geospatial data. And this was the opposite. It was like a bunch of pirates out in the wild getting together, bandits creating their own standard to solve a problem for themselves, and then working backwards into this organized body to have you know the, the full weight of their brand behind it too. I think that's pretty cool. So even though the data processing part might be something that's never standardized and always changing and something you constantly have to be keeping an eye on if you're doing downstream analytics, the way that data is exposed to you mechanically, logistically, can be standardized. And that's something that I have a lot of excitement about and faith in, that that's going to be something that is adopted across the entire industry. And that has profound effects. If every single vendor opens their data in the exact same way, then you can write one scraper that goes and indexes all of those catalogs and pulls it into one common repository for yourself. It just simplifies the process of going and getting the data so much. And that's, that's a really important step. So that is, a, that is one bit of positive news about standardization, maybe a slightly different part of the value chain, but still a super valuable project and something that I, I've been in support of for a few years now. It's been really wild to see how much adoption that's gotten over the last three years. Yeah, I'll have to track down some links to that and, and put them in the show notes for the listeners so they can follow up on that if they're interested. You know, what I've got out of this conversation so far is I am amazed at how complicated this is. I mean, obviously, it's complicated, right? We're flinging large chunks of metal into the sky and having them zoom around the earth at some ridiculous speed. And we're expecting just it all just to work magically. Obviously, this is a complicated problem to solve. But the, the fact that every different sensor needs to be treated differently and that it's not treated in a standard way. And then we have the, the whole process around storing the data. I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that it's, that it's as complicated as what it is. Maybe that's just me being naive. Well, it's, it's easier than it used to be. I mean, give us some credit. I, I mean, the, like back in the, gosh, I want to say it's the 50s. Might have been the 50s or 60s. There's this famous example of, you know, in the United States, the intelligence community launched these satellites with actual physical film canisters that they would send down from orbit, go and capture, and then bring back and develop in a lab. <laughs> so that's how you used to get data down to earth. I mean, high bandwidth, you know, you can fit a lot of information on a physical film canister, but that's how you used to do this stuff. So now that you can just, you know, beam it down to a ground station, process it in the cloud, and have it ready in a few minutes for a customer, like, it's a lot better than it used to be, but I agree. It's, it's way more complicated than it should be. And I think the way that you'll see things simplify is not that the imagery will get easier to work with necessarily, but that entrepreneurs will find applications for the imagery that they make really simple. So imagine like you work in the insurance industry and you're noticing increased flooding events and you're realizing that maybe you've mispriced insurance on residential homes that are exposed to flooding risk. I, I live in Austin, Texas. We have major flooding problems uh, on an increasingly regular basis. A bunch of homes that historically have never flooded are going to flood over the next 10 years. And so you can use satellite imagery and you can use elevation data and you can use you know, past flooding event data to predict which homes are at risk. I do not think it's the, the insurance, you know, the analyst, the insurance firm is going to come buy the satellite imagery and do all that from scratch. I think a startup or multiple startups are going to do all that heavy pre-processing work to get to that answer. Here are the homes you should care about. And, you know, here, here, here they are weighted against their value or their age or whatever other risk factors they have. So here's where you should focus your attention. That's how this is going to get easier. So the satellite imagery companies. Right now they're in the news, they're going public, space is a cool sector. Who cares? Like what problem are you solving? I think over the next 10, 20 years, no one's gonna really care about the satellite companies. We'll just be sort of in the background, this, this weird behind the scenes industry that, that powers a lot of really exciting startups and, and companies that are solving real problems for people. And that's how it's gonna get simpler to work with this data is, is the derivative intelligence you get from it will be presented in increasingly high fidelity, easy to work with ways that are tailored to different use cases. That, that would be my prediction. Do you think we might think about it the same way as we, we think about these data storage centers today? Like data storage centers power the internet. You know, cloud computing powers the internet, but no one's really interested in data storage centers. People are interested in what the internet can provide. Do you think that's kind of an analogy we could use to think about what 
the role satellite companies might play in the future? Oh, fantastic analogy. I'm stealing that. Yeah, who, who cares when you use AWS? Do you ask them, you know, physically where in the world the data centers are that you're using when you use US East One? Like, no, who cares? They could be on Mars for all you care, as long as it's performant and it works well. Same thing with satellite imagery. It's going to be like, you know, can you show me the calibration system you use to get the spectral uh, information dialed in so that you you could figure out that this was corn and not soy? Like, they're going to be like, no, it, it, as long as you can show a track record with ground truth data that you're accurate, who cares where it came from? As long as the data is accurate and you can prove that, no one's going to care that it came from Satellogic or Black Sky or Umbra. They're just going to care that it's accurate. So yeah, totally. It'll be a behind the scenes infrastructure piece to a bigger puzzle. And all this complexity we're talking about won't matter to the 99th percentile of person that takes advantage of the derivatives of this data. Yeah. And I look forward to that. It should, it should be behind the scenes. I think the only way that you see things change is if we can get to a place where there's a true commercial market for satellite imagery with a ton of demand. That's how you create competition. And today there, there isn't. There is some commercial use for satellite imagery, but by and large, it's a military technology. The largest customers of this data are military groups globally. They're spending orders of magnitude more per contract than commercial customers are. And really like the commercial market is sort of like Google, Apple, Microsoft, people making base maps for their sort of Google Maps competitor. And all this cool stuff around analytics, you know, that's all super nascent. There's a few companies doing it, maybe 100 or 200 companies really actually doing work. But until that's 10,000 companies or 20,000 companies, it's tough to compete with the, with the pressure that, you know, the deep pocketed militaries of the world put on these companies to sell priority access to them. So until we can break out of that pattern, which I think is going to take a while. And it's going to take some companies making commitments to commercial customers at the expense of short-term revenue, but with the hope of growing like a long-term industry before we can kind of get behind the scenes. But even then, like I said, like, you know, I guess you could say that coffee is a commodity, but high-end Sumatra beans versus like the Dunkin' Donuts grind at the Costco, those are totally different products. And so maybe the category is a behind the scenes thing, but there, there's always going to be a role for high end or premium data that supports premium applications. But even then, like we're a long ways off from an efficient market right now. It's kind of a duopoly on the high resolution optical imagery side. And I don't see anybody threatening that, at least in the short term. I want to sort of move off now and, and talk about something that's a little bit closer to home. I, I want to talk about synthetic aperture radar. So. You work for a company, a satellite company that is interested in synthetic aperture radar or, or SAR. When we talk about SAR, at least in my mind, we're, we're talking about monitoring as opposed to mapping. And, and I'd really like to start with that idea first. Could you give us a, an idea of, of what you think about when you, when you think about mapping versus monitoring? That's a great question. I think this is a super important topic because a lot of people, this is like a thing that I talk about a lot with folks when I'm in my day job trying to give them advice about how to think about different types of satellite data. And this idea of monitoring versus mapping is kind of a fundamental differentiator between what certain types of data are good for and what others are good for. So optical imagery, especially high resolution optical imagery, has a bunch of characteristics that make it really useful for mapping. And by that, I mean like tracing features in imagery that don't change very often. So buildings, roads, parks, forests, you know, they may be changing a little bit at the edges, but for the most part, the, the road that you drove on to get to work last year is still there this year. So they don't change a whole lot. So if that's your goal mapping, then what you want is really, really high resolution data and you want it as easily interpretable as possible, which optical imagery is visible light spectrum. So it's very natural for humans to interpret what's happening especially if it's taken directly straight down. So there's not like weird geometric problems with the data. And the cool thing about optical satellites is that they have really big lenses, the super high resolution ones do. Think of it like if you do wildlife photography and you want to take a picture of something really far away, you get a massive lens to put on your DSLR. Same concept, but just from space. Massive lens in space means that you can resolve really fine resolution on the ground. But because you're super high up above the earth, 
you also capture a lot of ground every time you take an image. So like in terms of footprint of the data, you're getting a lot of information every time you take a picture. And that's really good for mapping. So you get a broad area at very high resolution that's easy to interpret, doesn't change a whole lot. And so what you're optimizing for in that case is like absolute accuracy of the data. You want the pixels to line up with their actual location on earth because you're tracing for applications like navigating in your car. Like if the road were 10 meters off to one side or the other, and it looked like you were driving on the sidewalk, that would be kind of upsetting. So you want that data to be as accurately positioned as possible. And then it doesn't change a whole lot. So maybe you only want to update it once every few years. You buy, that's when you buy an update to your base map, which is typically what you see from Mapbox, Google, Bing. They're updating their imagery once every few years. That would be what I would call a mapping use case. Conversely, you might have a monitoring use case where you're trying to see change happening on the earth. And optical is not very good for that because only because you can't get access on a regular cadence. It's just way too expensive. And that's because for the same reason that optical imagery captures a really large footprint on the ground, it's because of that really big lens, really high up. Well, really big stuff, really high up in the sky is really expensive to do. It takes a lot of rocket fuel to get it up there. So these systems can weigh like multiple tons. And a thing that weighs multiple tons that's that big, that's that high up, takes a lot of jet fuel and a dedicated rocket. And that's super expensive. So you just can't launch a ton of them. And you know more are coming, but it's just very expensive. It, Maxar is launching a new system called Legion, which will be able to capture, I think, 29 centimeter imagery, which will be the highest resolution imagery ever. They're launching six in a planned constellation, if I'm not mistaken. And each one costs $100 million to build and launch. And they're so excited about that number that they're promoting. Like, it's only $100 million each. <laughs> so that gives you a sense of like, just how expensive and difficult it is to produce that very, very high-end, high-quality optical imagery that you want to use for mapping. But uh, it's not great for monitoring because it's just, you know, there are very few use cases where you can afford to spend thousands of dollars per image to monitor something. That's really a military use case. So if you think about what's optimized for monitoring, and when I say monitoring, I'm talking about like human activity on Earth mainly. Who's knocking down rainforest? who is you know, moving tanks along some conflict border, who is manufacturing cars you know, in their facility at a certain rate or, or above or below expectation. That type of monitoring use case is difficult to achieve with optical. And it's because of cost, but it's also because of the limitations of optical. So typically, these are constellations in what's called a sun-synchronous orbit. And that's because you need the light from the sun illuminating the earth to capture an optical image. It doesn't produce its own photons. So it passively collects light bouncing off the earth from the sun. And that means if you're in a sun-synchronous orbit, you're typically capturing images at the same time every day. So like around 10 a.m. or 2 a.m. Is, is a very typical sun-synchronous orbit. So you can't capture at night. Also, you can't see through clouds. So if it's cloudy, you don't get an image that day. And that's actually a huge problem because 60 to 65% of the Earth is covered in clouds at any given moment. And it's typically cloudier nearer to the equator. And guess where all the people live, where it's warm, near the equator. So a lot of the targets that people want to monitor are cloudy a lot of the time. And that, again, makes monitoring them with, with optical imagery really tough. So that was a long-winded way of, of kind of setting up for synthetic aperture radar, which is the industry I work in and is a really exciting industry, and we can talk more about it if you want. But synthetic aperture radar has a few characteristics that make it really optimized for monitoring. So radar is the operative word there. It's a microwave, sees right through clouds. It can see at night, so it's an active sensor. So you don't need to be in a sun-synchronous orbit. And you can capture imagery any time of day in just about any weather conditions, which is really nice. It's also synthetic aperture. So aperture is the size of that lens that I was talking about. In radar, you don't have a lens, you have a radar array. And synthetic aperture is where you take a bunch of images all right in a row as you traverse the sky, staring at the same area on Earth. And then you pretend as if all those images were taken by separate satellites in a large array. And that math forms a high-resolution image 
out of a single small satellite. And that changes the unit economics where you can get really high resolution, like 50 centimeter and below resolution, spatial resolution from a satellite that weighs 150 pounds instead of you know, one and a half tons. So that means that it's much cheaper to collect the data on a per satellite basis. And that means that monitoring doesn't have to cost as much. So you get this dual benefit of like the data is cheaper for the resolution and it can see at night and it can see through clouds. So you're utilizing the spacecraft much more efficiently on orbit. You're not having wasted pictures that you're capturing that are blocked by weather. So it, it all adds up to a, to a situation where it's ideal for monitoring. Now, it has a lot of drawbacks too, which we can go into. It's not like optical imagery. It's not easy to interpret. It's not in a wavelength that humans can see with their eyes. So there's all sorts of artifacts and strange phenomenology in the imagery that's not intuitive at all. It takes some work to interpret. But again, if your concept is you're going to train machine learning models to interpret this data automatically and, and monitor the entire world and, and show you anomalies and kind of point you to what's interesting and what's changing and what's important, then you don't really care that it's super easy to interpret visually as long as you can reliably extract the information that you're looking for. And that's kind of where we're at as an industry. Synthetic aperture radar, it's been around since the 1950s. It's literally been illegal to operate SAR constellations at super high resolution in the United States until recently. And now there's a, a few companies globally that are launching constellations at fairly high resolution that are commercially focused. So it's a super exciting time. And the big question is, who will be able to figure out what to do with this new synthetic aperture radar? Because there's, there's not enough people focused on that problem. There's a bunch of people focused on launching the satellites and getting the data available. That's what I'm full-time focused on. But then people to actually take that data and do things with it, sorely lacking at the moment. So that's the big challenge is can we recruit people into this industry to solve problems? So I think there's a lot of opportunity, but it's going to take a while. So a, a couple of things that really, really stood out for me when you're talking about synthetic aperture radar SAR sensors was the fact that it was cheaper for the pixel resolution that we're getting if we're comparing it to, to optical. And we have all these other advantages as well. We can it's lighter, so we can launch more of them. We can see through clouds. We can we can monitor. We don't have to be in this sun synchronous orbit. But I'm wondering if we still face the same challenges when we think about pre-processing the data and getting back to that idea of creating data that's perhaps analysis ready and interoperable. Are we facing all those same problems that we talked about earlier in the conversation? Even worse, yeah. <laughs> it's even worse with synthetic aperture radar because it's newer and it's harder and it's less familiar. I mean. What is a standard file format for synthetic aperture radar? It's not even a solved problem. There's two components to SAR. One is the amplitude data, which is most analogous to like a black and white image. Looks kind of like a black and white image from optical with some you know, strange characteristics about the way that stuff reflects. But that you can send people in a geotiff, fairly straightforward. But there's this second half to SAR data that really makes it, it's what makes it unique and interesting called phase. So because the, the photons are originating from a known point in space, you're beaming photons down at Earth and then they're bouncing back to you. You can measure where along the wave pattern, the waveform, it reaches the sensor. And that acts almost like a, a distance measuring tool. So the same feature captured from the same point in space should return at the same point in the waveform. It's the same length of photon from, you know, wave from where it originated to where it returned to the sensor. If that thing gets shorter or lower, then the point in the waveform will change. It'll, it'll, it'll land on a different spot in the wave pattern. And so you can use that to do like millimeter scale measurement of subsidence where land is literally sinking and also look at where new structures are being built or new structure is rising from the ground, which is super exciting. That data, it's called phase data or phase history data. That has been used in, from a military perspective to do all sorts of crazy analysis of human activity and pattern of life analysis. And now it's going to be available in a commercial context to do stuff like monitoring infrastructure that's you know, sinking into the ground that might be a sign that it's structurally weak or looking at where aquifers are draining or looking at where lava patterns under volcanoes might signal when they're about to erupt. There's all sorts of awesome sort of geological infrastructure applications for this data. There is no standard for how that data is represented 
There are no good open source tools for working with that data. There are just the beginnings of both of those things, but it's very difficult data to exploit. So yeah, you have an even worse problem where not only is the pre-processing not standardized across the industry, but the tooling to exploit it and the file formats and all of that isn't figured out. So compared to optical, there's like a really long road to go in synthetic aperture radar. And again, that means opportunity for the early adopters who can work on that really hard problem and kind of crack that nut. But it also means it's going to be slower to see commercial adoption because people will get the data and be like, what is this? I mean, I don't even know how to open this file. So yeah, it's something that I think about a lot. So we've been talking for a while now and overwhelmingly what I'm getting out of this conversation is this is much harder than people think, if I had to summarize it. So I'm kind of curious, when you think about this, you mentioned opportunity before. Are you more excited by the opportunities that you see or, or overwhelmed by them? I guess I'm not thinking about it too deeply because I'm not overwhelmed by it. <laughs> Maybe I should be. I don't know. No, I'm excited. I mean, I'll just be totally honest with you. Before I took this job working for a satellite manufacturer, I was not planning to stay in this industry. And the reason was that since like 2014, 2015, when there was this initial flood of venture capital dollars and companies like Orbital Insight and Descartes Labs and Space Snow and all these Silicon Valley startups got started, and they were all promising to answer all the questions that the world had and use satellite imagery for all sorts of newfangled things. It never really came to fruition. Like piece by piece, we've made progress. But the problem was that they couldn't get access to the raw data they needed to be able to do all the cool applications they had in mind because there's just, it's a supply constrained industry. Like there's not enough high resolution data to solve the problems that people want to apply this data to. And so you can't afford it, can't get access to it, can't get it licensed in a way that allows you to build what you want to build. So I just was like fed up. And I wrote an article. That's actually what started me down this path is last year, you know, in the thick of COVID, I don't have kids. So I was sitting around with some spare time and a bunch of spare energy. And I was like, I'm just going to write an honest blog post about how messed up this industry is. And it was kind of, I was thinking this may sink my professional relationships by just being honest and saying, it's all, it's all made up. Like no one's actually doing good work in this space. You can't afford the imagery. You can't get access to it. I think the title of the blog post is like commercial satellite imagery is broken or something like that. And I fully expected it to be the sort of end of this chapter of my career, as, as melodramatic as that sounds. And I thought, I'll just go into medical imaging or something, you know, <laughs> like there's other analogous fields, but this is just not, I didn't see a path out. Like I didn't see it changing because it's so expensive to launch these systems. And it's not something you can do with, you know, a million dollar check from an angel in Silicon Valley. Like you need a hundred million dollar check just to get started kind of thing. And what happened was the response I got was overwhelmingly positive. Even from the people that worked at the satellite imagery providers I was criticizing, the response was positive. And I realized like this whole industry is focused on the same goal. We all realize that there is a climate crisis on this planet right now. And satellite imagery has an irreplaceable role to play in quantifying that, in illuminating where climate risks are and responding to climate related disasters. Like everybody's on the same page. This has to get easier. This has to get cheaper. This has to get more accessible. We need more entrepreneurs applying this data to solve problems. And that kind of reinvigorated me. Like, even though it's really hard, everybody's on the same page and we don't view ourselves as competing with each other. We view ourselves as competing with the status quo, which is not to do much of anything about it. And so that got me really excited. And then I started learning about these other modalities, hyperspectral imagery, GPS radio oculation, RF signal collection, synthetic aperture radar, hyperspectral data. I may have already mentioned that. There's like all these newfangled tools that are just coming out and people that are thinking about their businesses totally differently than the historical way that satellite imagery businesses have been built. And that got me excited again. Like I thought, well, shoot, maybe I could dedicate my whole career to this. Like maybe by the end of my career, we won't have made this dead simple, but we'll have made it incrementally easier every single year for 30 or 40 years. And I can't even really imagine all the ways that this data can be applied, which is part of what's so exciting about it. Like I do calls with people on, on an almost daily basis who have 
problems they're looking to solve that I would never come up with in a million years. And that makes this industry so much fun to work in. Like to give you an example, there's a group in the United States that maps all of the floating ice in the world as frequently as possible to tell ships where to like avoid being the next Titanic. Like there's a glacier or a floating iceberg. There's, you know, ice that's about to break off of this huge landmass and cause problems in the shipping lane. They're mapping all that all the time. Like use cases like that, you don't sit on the couch and come up with that. Like that's a problem that has to be solved, but it's a problem that can only be solved with persistent satellite imagery. So stuff like that just gets me super excited. So am I overwhelmed by it? No. Am I optimistic about it? Like optimistic enough to, to make the prediction that I'll be working on it for the rest of my career? Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks very much for that, Joe. I, I really appreciate it. And it's so refreshing to hear someone just sort of be honest, put it on the table and say, this is what I was thinking. This is what changed my mind. And this is the direction I'm heading in now. I, I really, really appreciate that. Well, thanks. I mean, the, the problem in this industry, if I could name one, is that we don't talk enough, honestly with each other about what's really going on. We're all kind of self-conscious and want to put out this image that everything's going great and things are awesome and we're doing cool stuff. And that's why I appreciate, you know, this podcast is that you give people a platform to maybe be a little bit more vulnerable, a little more honest and give people a, a clear picture of the state of the industry. Because to me, there's no, there's no time for bullshit. I hope I can curse on this podcast. I didn't actually clear that with you beforehand, but it's just like you see what's happening every single day. Oil getting spilled or catching fire in the ocean with wildfires causing more wildfires here in North America just because of like convection currents with droughts and famine and all this stuff that's happening at a humanitarian scale. To work in an industry that has an opportunity to make a direct impact on that is a total privilege. And there is no time to pretend like things are going super well or super smoothly. Like we have to focus on what the problems are, be honest about them, and then ask for help to solve them. Ask for people to come into this space from other adjacent industries. Like I hate credentialism. I do not think you need a degree in geography or GIS to work in this field. I do not think you need a PhD in remote sensing to do machine learning on satellite imagery. What we need is people from those applied disciplines like insurance and agriculture and natural disaster response and humanitarian aid. We need people coming from an understanding of what the problems are to this mode of solving them, satellite imagery, satellite data. And if we just keep talking as if everything is perfect and simple and easy and all the startups are doing well and making a ton of money and just pretending that there's this world that exists that doesn't yet exist today, we're not going, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice in the long term because we're not going to recruit the type of help that we need to realize the potential of this industry. So platforms like this, podcasts like this, where you can come on and just be honest and reach an audience that cares deeply and is curious and interested, it's a huge luxury for the industry. And it has a bunch of second order effects that are hard to predict, but I'm just grateful that you put it together because I love listening to your podcast and uh, I love hearing the guests that come on and what they talk about. And I, I think you have a knack for bringing that out in people, bringing out the sort of honest, maybe less talked about elements of the industry. So keep, keep doing what you're doing because it's a huge service to the rest of us. Thanks very much for that, Joe. That was a, a massive compliment and I, I truly appreciate it. I think probably now is a really great time to sort of round off the conversation a little bit. I have really enjoyed this conversation. I have really appreciated your honesty, your openness, and, and of course your insights into the earth observation industry. We don't get these everywhere. So thank you very much for coming along and sharing that with us today. Again, really, really appreciate it. Now, there are definitely listeners out there that are thinking, how can I reach out to Joe? How can I get a hold of him? Would you mind sharing those details with the listeners? If they want to connect with you, where should they go? The easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I'm probably on there too much. <laughs> so my, I have the worst handle of all time, Mouth of Morrison. With a name like Joe Morrison, like everything's taken. And if you go there, you'll see I have a link in my profile to a, a newsletter that I put out. That's another great way to reach me. If you subscribe to that newsletter, not only do you get like my rambling thoughts every month or two, but if you respond to one of those emails, it goes directly to my personal inbox. I read everything, I promise. I, I'm not able to respond to everything right away. 
but I promise you that I see it. And when I do have time, I, I do respond to people who just send me emails from my newsletter. So yeah, those are probably the best ways to get in front of me. But uh, if you want to like chat, tweet at me, don't DM me. I mean, you can DM me. That's fine. But if you're going to ask a question that other people might be interested in the answer to, or if I can rope in somebody right there on Twitter who would know the answer, like do it out in public where the rest of us can benefit from it. Those are my favorite conversations. So that's probably the best way to reach me. Cheers. I'll put links to those places in the show notes so people can find you there and make it a little bit easier for them. Thanks again, Joe. This has been awesome. Thanks. Yeah, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for having me on. Big thank you to our sponsor, Regrid, formerly known as Landgrid. So Regrid, in case you haven't heard of them before, are one of the leading providers of parcel and location context data for the US. Regrid collect, clean and stitch together property boundaries for the entire US and make it really easy to get access to this. If you want to understand how US land is subdivided, owned and used, Regrid would be a great place to start. They offer a free trial. So you can download up to 50,000 rows of parcel data for free and try it out. They have a self-serve data store, a parcel API, a vector and raster tile. So I guess the thing you should take away from this is that they, they have pretty amazing data and a bunch of different ways you can get at it. Regrid.com, formerly known as Langrid. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joe Morrison. I'll put links to his Twitter handle and to his email newsletter in the in the podcast show notes. Just a quick note on his newsletter. I'm a huge fan of it. It's everything a newsletter should be. It is informative, it is well-written, and it's often funny. So it's not a sales pitch. It's an actual newsletter, an email newsletter that's worth reading. And I would encourage you to, to check it out. Again, there'll be links to all that in the show notes. I'll also include a link to the spatial temporal asset catalog stack joe talked briefly about this during our conversation and you, i think that you might find this interesting and that's it for another episode of the mapscaping podcast thank you so much for tuning in again this week i really really appreciate it as always you're more than welcome to reach out to me you can find me on twitter or linkedin there'll be links to both those places in the show notes or just search for mapscaping host of mapscaping something like that you, you'll find me i'm hiding in plain sight you're also more than welcome to send me an email if that's your thing info at mapscaping.com that'll arrive at the right place thanks so much for tuning in again this week much appreciated i'll see you again next week bye